Good morning. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Cave Movahead. People have called the Rio Grande a main artery, delivering life-giving water to and through our arid state. But year after year, we see the river continuing to dry further north and recently through Albuquerque. And the ecosystems, communities, and industries that depend upon the river are shrinking too. There's no end to the desiccation in sight, and the plants, animals, and people who depend on the river are becoming more and more desperate for its steady flow to support life, lifestyle, and tradition. Climate change plays a significant role in the river's transformation, but so do the centuries of use by people that have diverted the river for farming and drinking, built dams and reservoirs along its path, and commodified and divvied up the river, creating owners of the water with legal rights and legal disputes that go along with them. On this episode of Let's Talk New Mexico, we'll discuss the ecosystems, communities, and industries adapting to the changing river and landscape, and we want to hear from you also. Do you work? Do you do work? that depends on the Rio Grande's waters? Was the river an important part of your life growing up? Do you have expertise in the changing environment in and around the river that you'd like to share? Email letstalk at kunm.org or call in live at 505-277-5866. We'll start the show this morning with two guests who inspired our team to host this discussion, freelance journalist Danielle Prokop and freelance visual journalist Diana Cervantes teamed up to travel about 700 miles of the Rio Grande from Colorado to Texas to capture the images and stories of people who live and work along the river. Danielle's here in the studio with us, and Diana has joined us by Zoom. Thanks to you both for joining us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Now, you two published 14 stories on the Rio Grande with Source New Mexico. And Danielle, you wrote something like 15,000 words. That's a huge project. Does the river mean something personal to you? Do you have a history with it? Absolutely. Actually, I grew up along the river. I am born and raised in White Rock, New Mexico, and my mom is from the San Luis Valley up in Colorado. And so I've had a history along the river. I went to college at UNM, and I uh, now work and live in El Paso, Texas at the tail end of the snowmelt. Diana, do you have a, a similar story or a connection with the river? Yes, absolutely. So I used to um, wander down what is now Tingley Beach, actually. And I remember when it was just the forest of trees. Um, and that area is just so special to me. So that's where I got my connection to water. And then, you know, walking my dogs along the Rio Grande has always been very special. So and the Bosque area is just beautiful. All right, Danielle, what sorts of expectations did you have about what you would see and who you might meet? Uh, were there any surprises? Oh, this uh, entire journey was full of surprises. Um, but, you know, we, we wanted to focus on three areas in specific. It was agriculture, ecosystems, and culture. Um, and, and so we found all sorts of people living along the Rio Grande. What was surprising is how many people wanted to share the story, who wanted to talk about it all the time. I've, uh, you know, some of the folks in agriculture can sometimes be shy, but when it came to this topic, they were really eager to talk about the efforts that they've made to change or, or make solutions or what, they, what their fears are for the future. Diana, I'd like to hear from you, too. Did you have ideas of what kinds of scenes or images you might capture? And then how did that compare with the reality once you got there? Um, so one of the things that I was really shocked to see was um, when we went in through the Rio Grande National Forest, you know, at the headwaters and where we saw, you know, just a bunch of trees were completely dead from um, 
due to, and then previous years I had been there, it was completely lush and green. So I was not prepared to see some of the stark changes in the environment. Um, and I think, you know, you think about how the river is going through such a drastic time, you know, when it dries. And um, although we did the fish rescue, I I knew that I was going to see fish dying, but I, I didn't think about seeing fish in the act of dying. So that was very difficult. Okay, well, we're going to get to that a little later in the hour. I'm going to kind of follow your path, tracing the river from north to south. Um, Danielle, you know, your series starts in those northern headwaters of the Rio Grande and the San Juan Mountains in Colorado. Most of the river starts as snowfall, and you found that even when there's plenty of snow, the river doesn't always swell. Tell us why. Yeah, so there's been a lot of changes in how we measure what the normal amount of snowpack looks like. And I won't get too deep into that. But what we do know is that climate change has made snowpacks smaller. But it has changed the way that snowpack melts in other ways. Um, because the soils have been so dry, they uptake more water before it even reaches the stream beds. And um, the plants and other um, ecosystem factors are also thirstier. And so they often take more water before it even reaches. Another issue is that dust and other things are landing on top of the snow, making it melt faster and not necessarily breaching the riverbed. Another problem, of course, is sublimation. That's where snow immediately evaporates into the air and fails to go into the riverbed. So even though the water cycle means that that water still stays within the entire Earth's atmosphere, that doesn't mean it comes back into the Rio Grande watershed. Right. And then something we know in this region fairly well is wind, right? And that carries that dust that probably adds to that sublimation, evaporation. It's also been stripping the snow off of the mountains. Uh, that was the big problem this May. We had a significant amount of snow in the April, March months. And so people um, were really excited a little bit, or they were hesitantly excited, I would say, about the prospects of a pretty wet water year. And they watched it be stripped away by those high, high, hot winds that New Mexicans remember as spreading the Hermit's Peak fire, but it caused other environmental damage further north. Now, Diana, when you were up in that headwater area in the San Juan Mountains, can you kind of describe what it looked like? Yes. Um, to me, it seemed like a very vibrant, lush river, you know, with the backdrop of the, the forest, you know, um, patches were green with lush trees, whereas other areas were, you know, there were some burn scars from previous fires that had happened or, you know, the beetle infestation. But the water to me seemed so alive and it was such a stark contrast to seeing it be so full of life there versus being down south where the water completely dries up. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was magical to see where this river begins and being in that space was um, breathtaking and sitting on top of the where there was a moment where me and Danny just sat at the edge of one of the of the trails up there and we just stared out at the water and were amazed at how people can be paddling and boating out, out there. And it's just such a different river up there than what we see down south. So even though it looked and felt green and lush, you met a rancher up there named Kyler Brown. He was kind of featured in one of your early stories. And I think he kind of... He didn't have an attitude of unlimited water and uh, a place that is green and lush and ever, ever giving, right? Right. He, I think a lot of it also comes from his morality. You know, I think ranching, as he knows it, you know, water is a big part of it. And so he has this relationship with water where he knows it's not super abundant. And 
there's a time where I can end, unfortunately. So I think being around him also, even though it's that contrast of what I see, what I thought was like full of water up there in the headwaters to them, it's like it's still so different to how it was years ago. Um, so hearing his perspective and understanding the questions that he raises himself towards himself about morality was very interesting. And it also kind of opened my eyes more to see how every patch of the river has different um, relationships to it. Okay, now, Danielle, I want to follow up with you on this. He kind of had some progressive ideas about ranching and coexisting with a changing environment. Can, can you tell us a little about him and those ideas? Absolutely. Um, so Kyler Brown is a, he's a fairly young rancher, right? He's, he's in his um, early 40s. And he is a Midwest transplant who moved to the San Luis Valley, um, fell in love with a San Luis girl and, and married there. You know, he runs a pretty standard San Luis farm with his father-in-law. It's a small, uh, small operation, just four circles. Uh, so this isn't like some of the mega ranch or mega agricultural spaces that still do exist in the in the San Luis Valley. So he talked about um, the morality of his position, and that was something that he really focused on. But I would say even beyond Kyler, there was I spoke with many of my family members, right? But other um, I spoke with uh, you know dozens of uh, farmers and ranchers out there, and. Um, whether conservative, Democrat, right? Like it doesn't matter. They are well aware that their river is in crisis and that there has to be some changes made. Yeah, you're kind of maybe describing adapting attitudes and they weren't uncommon, you say. Uh, I'm thinking of a guy you met, Nathan Coombs, who runs the Conejos River District in Colorado. You wrote that he said, uh, here's a quote. We're seeing a whole new mentality here. It's not north versus south, east versus west, surface versus groundwater. He was talking about new alliances with fishermen, environmentalists, and others who have an interest in keeping the rivers running. Describe some of the presumably unlikely collaborations you came across. Yeah, absolutely. There was some with um, Nathan Coombs specifically, right, said he had a transformation of his own values about water. He used to say that water was for production ag only. That was his viewpoint growing up, and that was his viewpoint into adulthood. But um, he met some folks with Trout Unlimited, right, which is a, a, a fish nonprofit that helps um, with with keeping uh, fish in the river. And he mentioned that they, they started changing their practices to release water at different times, staggering it. So um, the nonprofit would pay farmers to keep water, uh, to, to ask them not to use water until a certain time, and they'd call for it. And that made sure that there was enough water in the river for the fish to spawn. And so he, he started talking about that now he feels this responsibility, right? He says himself he's not an environmentalist, but he feels this real d true deep responsibility to not just animals, but people downstream and, and how where the water is going. He, he starts to see it as this more connected thing. And this great thing about Coombs is he's now running these roundtables every month where people from nonprofits, from government agencies, from all sorts of places are showing up and they're just informally talking about water all the time. And it's this running conversation in the valley. Okay. Uh, so we have Nathan Coombs, we have the rancher Kyler Brown, uh, people on both ends or two ends of kind of the, the, the water idea, one usage, one kind of management and supply. Uh what other kinds of people care about the river? Oh, 
so many people care about the river. <laughs> and I think that that is, is, is what was really valuable in the end, right? Um, if we're moving down out of Colorado, right, we start to see um, all of these folks, whether it's environmentalists, um, but also everyday folks have a really special connection with the river. And I think that that's something valuable that our story was able to do is highlight not just farmers, ranchers, environmentalists, um, managers, people who work with the water every day, but people who are interacting on it with like a spiritual or emotional level. And that's something that we were finding um, on the Conejos River, right, which is a tributary. We met with a couple of folks who were caretaking a, a church graveyard there, and they had taken care of the bones of this church uh, the San Ysidro Catholic Church for a long time. And they talked about their relationship with farming and the river and spirituality. And that was really valuable. So it sounds like this is maybe, is this a broader pattern that you're, that you're describing that isn't just unique to the northern end of the river? Yeah, I think um, I think there's a more a greater willingness right now for people to maybe talk about the changes that they're seeing in the river. I don't think that this was the case in my childhood. I don't think it was the case in in college even as much. But I think that people right now are starting to really open up a little bit about this. Do you think some of these folks you talked to were surprised themselves that these relationships are changing? Certainly. I would definitely say that they were sometimes pleasantly surprised that uh, that they could start building uh, relationships with people that they would, quote, never have talked to previously. Um, and that's not to say that everything is, uh, to quote Nathan Coombs, not everything is kumbaya. Sometimes there's skunks at the picnic. But he's saying for the most part, like a lot of folks broadly, and this is starting to be maybe hopefully outside of Colorado, but a lot of folks broadly are starting to come together and talk about these issues. All right. Thank you very much, Daniel Prokop. This is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Cave Movahead. We're taking your calls about the Rio Grande's importance to our culture. Call us at 505-277-5866. We'll be right back. Support comes from Positive Energy Solar, a local employee-owned benefits corporation installing solar electric systems in neighborhoods across New Mexico since 1997. Info on solar for homes and businesses at PositiveEnergySolar.com. Spend time with a loved one by interviewing them for StoryCorps. Appointments are available both in person and in their virtual recording booth. Sign up at StoryCorps.org slash KUNM or call 800-850-4406. This week on Counterspin, if you care about free expression and freedom generally, there is much to talk about right now. It is good to anchor ourselves in that conversation. History is alive and active, and you are a part of it. So today we're going to re-air a conversation that we had in January of 2017 with historian Ellen Schrecker, an expert on McCarthyism and its impacts. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Cave Movahead. We're talking to reporter Daniel Prokop and photographer Diana Cervantes, who collaborated on a 14-part series called Crisis on the Rio Grande for Source New Mexico. You can find a link on our website, KUNM.org. Uh, As we follow the stories of the River South and explore different themes, this is a good time to bring in another voice to the conversation. Here in the studio, I'm sorry, actually, no, via Zoom, we have Phoebe Suina from Cochiti and San Felipe Pueblos. She was on our show about two years ago, and we're thrilled to have her back. 
Phoebe studied engineering, she's a hydrologist, and she owns High Watermark, a company that specializes in flood disasters, stormwater management, and watershed rehab and protection. And since we talked to her last time, she's filled a seat on the Interstate Stream Commission. Thanks for joining us this morning, Phoebe. Good, good morning, everybody. Thank you for um, this opportunity. Now, Phoebe, you also happen to be featured in one of Danielle's stories for this series. And for listeners who want to see the series, it is published by Source New Mexico. We have that link at KUNM.org on the page for this show. Uh, Phoebe, would you describe the cultural importance of the Rio Grande to Pueblo people? Um, yes. Thank you so much for the question. I think uh, for me, I, yeah, I can't speak for all Pueblo people, but for myself and my family, uh, the river, uh, the Middle Rio Grande River in particular, and up here at Cochiti, we have, of course, the Cochiti Reservoir and all of the tributaries, um, uh, you know, that flow into the river. Everything is so interconnected um, and interdependent into our way of life, as I was brought up. And the river itself, uh, as I explained in, to Danny in the article, you know, every day I carry it, you know, by looking at the back of my hand with all the veins um, and just a reminder of how important the river is to life um, and our whole environment and ecosystem. And what about to your own family? You shared with me that your grandmother cherished the water, but also kind of warned you about the power of the river. Absolutely. Um, as my grandparents taught us, uh, the water, um, it has life-giving um, properties and life-giving um, attributes to it, but also to make sure that we respect the water, that we respect the power of the water. And so we can also take it for granted. And so there's a, a balance there where we need it. And then also to revert, revere it and to respect um, the water. And, and we see that, right? We see, we've seen that over the last year and in the power of the floods after many of the fires in New Mexico. Uh, we used to see that as the middle Rio Grande used to flood a couple hundred years ago or a hundred years ago. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's great power in that, but there's also great beauty and, um, and, and blessings that come with that. Now, coming from Cochiti and San Felipe, you're, you're right there along the river. Uh, I wonder when you think about it, what kinds of memories, uh, come to mind? Oh, many memories, um, from the main stem itself all the way to its tributaries, being young kids, um, you know, floating down the Santa Fe River on the tributary from the east, and then also the Rio Chiquito and the river and the streams coming out of Bland Canyon, uh, going up into those areas with my grandparents and my family on on weekend outings, and and also just to learn about about the uh, our environment and our connection to that, and also again how important water is to our daily way of life. 
Now I'd like to go to Diana. You and Danielle talked to people a little further from the river too. And I'm thinking of some of those photos of Phoebe in the Jemez and dipping her hands in the Rio Chiquito, like she just mentioned. But there were others like the St. Anthony Fiesta and Carnuel. I think the implication is that all these waterways, even the small ones that are a little further out, are connected. Did you already have that sense or was it something you might have learned along the way? I think it was both. So I think Danny and I both had knowledge of certain areas that we were traveling along the river. For instance, I had known about this procession for a while. Um, and so I realized that they, um, you know, they led the spiritual practice of going up to bless the Ojo Spring. And so I, I figured that was something we really wanted to capture. And serendipitously, it ended up happening at the same time we were in Albuquerque. So we uh, were able to capture that. And in other instances, you know, like I said, Danny had a lot of knowledge of, you know, South Texas. So we were able to um, speak with folks there. But I think a lot of it also was serendipitous, you know, depending on where we were, we ended up, we would be driving and we stumbled upon people who we were, we were like, even this was not down South, but, you know, even with Hector and it was someone we just met by chance and even the people at the church. Um, so it was just about asking questions and meeting folks where, where they were. Now, Danielle, I'd like to follow up with you. Uh, when we think about a project focused on the Rio Grande, we might not think of the Jemez Mountains, you know, maybe the bigger tributaries, the Pecos River or Rio Chama. But was that something you had in mind from the beginning or was it kind of uh, knowledge you picked up along the way? It definitely evolved as I thought about it. But um, a key conversation that I had with a couple of water journalists before is what shaped the ideas for this project. And it helped me expand what I was going to do beforehand. Um, he framed it in a way that saying he was excited to see the connective tissue of the river uh, and that I was doing a bigger project between states and also between pueblos and trying to do something that hadn't maybe been done, which was see the river from maybe an eagle's eye view at the top. But when we started doing that, then we started seeing just how interconnected further it is, whether it's the mountains or the tributaries. And so those serendipitous moments, right, were really incredible, where suddenly, like Diana and I were like, this is exactly where we need to be, and this is what we need to be covering. And so it would evolve sometimes in the moment um, to being the exact right thing we needed to do. Phoebe, you know the science behind rivers and tributaries and springs, and also the traditional Pueblo understandings. Are all the waterways connected? Absolutely. Um, you know, in order for the river to be healthy um, and vibrant and, and give the blessings that it needs to, to support life up and down the Rio Grande all the way from Colorado to Texas, um, the tributaries are an essential part of the river. They're um, essential inputs as well as that connective tissue that was just mentioned. Okay, let's kind of shift the line of thought just a little bit. Uh, I'm wondering if all of the waterways are also connected under law, Phoebe. Um, you have, since we talked to you a couple of years ago, been appointed to the Interstate Stream Commission. So I bet you have some insight here. Yes, absolutely. And water law here in New Mexico is very complicated, as well as it's continuing to evolve. Um, you know, decisions made in the state 
when after the state of Mexico became a state in the early 1900s, you know, we have the interstate stream compacts that overlap. We have a number of adjudications and water settlements that have occurred uh, all the way up from the Taos Pueblo area, um, ongoing settlements um, to the west and tributaries along the Rio Perco, around along the Rio Jemez, ongoing. So water law here in New Mexico is very complicated and is overlap between federal considerations, Pueblo tribal water right considerations, the state of New Mexico considerations, and of course, local governments. Now, we received a comment from Dr. Elizabeth Berkey, who says around 26 years ago, there was a campaign to remove the invasive salt cedar. The effort just kind of fizzled out. She says we should invest resources in removing harmful plants along the river across the state, including on native lands. Phoebe, is this something you would support? Um, I, I always look at the the various projects like a, a mass removal as uh, one of the things that I've learned through all the lessons and the lessons here within the state of New Mexico from uh, my grandparents and those ancestors is, you know, to make sure that the decisions are mindful. So it's not a cookie cutter approach. It might not be the knee-jerk reaction needed for every single tributary, every single portion of the river. So it really has to be done in a mindful way. Um, I think that there are some invasive species that need to be better managed um, when they were first introduced, like salt cedar was for uh, erosion control and it just kind of got out of hand. And so we have had to have an environment that sort of adapted to it, but we're still kind of unraveling those invasive introductions that happened uh, decades ago. Okay. And we do have a civil engineer as a guest on the show that's going to be introduced in just a bit. So maybe this is something we can come back to a little bit later in the hour. Um, But Phoebe, I I want to get back to the discussion on water law. We're not going to focus too much on that today, but uh, I've mentioned a couple times you're now on the Interstate Stream Commission. Can you kind of tell us what that body does? Absolutely. Um, The Interstate Stream Commission, as I've learned um, through my appointment term, um, oversees a number of interstate stream compacts uh, between Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas. We have compacts between Colorado, New Mexico, and even Oklahoma and Arizona. So it oversees a number of different um, legal uh, compacts that that basically oversee water here in the in the state of New Mexico. It also oversees some of the water planning for the state of New Mexico. Um, and so looking at the long-term picture of water management here and then try to incorporate those considerations in, in the water management. So uh, I've learned a great deal um, on the Interstate Stream Commission, one of how, um, from the state of New Mexico's point of view, how water is managed and with some of the considerations. Also the overlapping of, you know, legislative law laws going through the legislature and how they become law and how um, it gets implemented either at the state engineer's um, department or at the Interstate Stream Commission. 
Okay, so in addition to developing water resources and working with other states, you also have a conservation function at the Interstate Stream Commission. Does that specifically apply to the water, or is it also the ecosystems around waterways? Uh, that's a great question, and it's something that I'm I'm continuing to learn about, but I know in particular um, talking about water and then, of course, conservation on how that conservation can positively or negatively affect the, the requirements that the state of New Mexico has for its interstate stream compacts. So there's always that those considerations and how, how we can navigate that in order to be compliant with those compacts. Okay, Danielle, now we're starting to touch on ecology. I'm thinking of your story of the silvery minnow rescue and the vivid pictures Diana took. Tell us about that outing with the Fish and Wildlife Service into the drying riverbed south of Albuquerque last summer. What did you learn? Uh, so much in so little time. Uh, we spoke with uh, Thomas Archdeacon, who is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Coordinator for the program. He's been doing that about 15, 11 years here. Uh, he's been leading that 11 years, and he's been working about 20 in New Mexico. And he and his team of four folks took us out on a fish rescue. Um, they had been doing it the whole week. And so what had happened is there was a, a sort of flash drying event in the San Acacia Reach, which is south of Socorro. This reach dries every year, but there was something particular about this year where it dried very fast, almost overnight. There was a loss of 18 river miles almost overnight. And so the f folks on fish rescue had to move pretty fast. And so what fish rescue is, it is the little searching of small pools, which can occur from like some groundwater spaces or in the sort of shady crevices of the riverbank, pulling through those pools with sign nets and pulling out silvery minnow and putting them in an oxygenated tank and taking them upstream, whether that's to, um, and then either releasing them further upstream in the river or keeping them at the lab. And so from what we were finding, I, I mean, it was, it was, efforts of hours to find 35 fish. But what we also found in the riverbed was how many other fish were left behind because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a mandate to act um, for this endangered species, the minnow. It's very small, not very charismatic. It was listed in 1994. And this effort then is to, to pick them out of the mud and to put them in a tank and take them upstream and leave everything else in the riverbed. And I was able to chat with Thomas Archdeacon uh, earlier this week. Unfortunately, he was unable to join us uh, this hour. But he told me that it's something they've been doing, you know, annually recently. And they intend to kind of keep doing it. But uh, you, you had a great quote from him. Um, what was it that he said kind of about the... Uh, I don't know if morality is the right word, the, the, the way this has to keep going on year after year. Yeah, he said, he said, eventually we may have to take the emphasis off of fish rescue. Um, but he also did call fish rescue itself slapping a Band-Aid on a severed limb. Um, he, he said it's not addressing the problems, which is having a year-round habitat to keep silvery minnow in. They're still studying it, right? Like there's a lot that we don't know about this fish because it's it's short-lived, right? It lives maybe two to four years in captivity and maybe one year in the wild. And so there's a lot of 
questions about how to, there's still like a lot of questions about it. Like why does it live mostly in the Santa Cacia Reach? Why doesn't it go maybe further upstream into Albuquerque where the river doesn't dry as much? There's some hypotheses, right, that the Santa Cacia might be slower and just slightly better, a better place for the fish to live. But uh, that's only when there's water in the river. Okay, Diana, I think the scene that Danny has kind of talked about is one that a lot of our listeners in Albuquerque can picture. The river dried through the city last year. It's likely to happen again. You told me some of the photos you took were just too graphic to include with the story. Tell us about that. What did you see there? Uh, Well, I think more so I took also video of the when we were out there. And I think, you know, I had this moment where I thought, you know, should I show that these fish actively, you know, um, slapping themselves on the mud, trying to find a, a pool to hide in, under and find shelter in. And I figured, you know, I think I also want to respect the fish um, in terms of, you know, wanting to respect their what they bring to the river and, and their lives. And so I decided to kind of be more uh, mindful of the way I represented them, but also giving a full picture of the actual uh, rescue itself, which is, you know, really stark. And, um, you know, it's like Danny said, it's for people against miles and miles of river trying to find these really small fish. Um, But yeah, no, it was very stark. And I think one of the pictures that sticks with me is obviously the first one that we included in in the series. And we can talk about that later if if we wanted to. But I but yeah, it was like I said, some of the videos were just too graphic. Describe that photo for us for for listeners. Yeah. So that photo is of Mallory Burrow and Keegan Epping bending over a fine fishnet in the um, in the dry riverbed. And in the foreground are one fish that's completely passed away and its mouth is open with its final breath and there's one fish that's flapping on on the mud and so and combing through the nets is Mallory and Keegan trying to find the silvery minnow as they stand in very very shallow pools on a very hot morning in the Santa Cacia Reach. And that wasn't exactly an isolated scene right you kind of no, saw that. No that was yeah pretty much along the whole stretch of that. Um, For listeners who want to have a look at these photos, uh, find a link to the Source New Mexico series at KUNM.org. Also, listeners, are you worried or confident when it comes to water management in the future of the Rio Grande? Tell us why by calling 505-277-5866 or email us at letstalk at KUNM.org. Or you can tweet to us using the hashtag letstalknm. We have just a minute. Let's go ahead and take a caller. We have Bill from Los Lunas on the line. Go ahead, Bill. Yes, good morning. Good morning, ladies. I appreciate your efforts. Uh, when the population is uh, driving over the bridge in Montano or the new bridge in Las Lunas, you cannot see the river. Is somebody's uh, issue, I mean, in this issue, is it the theory of uh, out of sight, out of mind? That's my question. Thank you. Bill, that's a really interesting question. It seems like we would want to highlight a beautiful scene like the river, right? Um, We are about to go to a break, and when we come back, we're going to have a civil engineer on the show with us, and I'm going to pitch this question to him. Uh, So, listeners, please stick with us. Uh, You are listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahead. Stay right there. We'll be back in just a minute. 
I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, the forgotten story of Teresa Urrea, the Mexican Joan of Arc who healed with her touch. Teresita became a symbol of a forgotten history that was utterly fascinating. I mean, she was like the Selena of her time. That's next time on Latino USA. That's Latino USA, Monday mornings at 8 a.m. on KUNM. It's the season of love. If you love KUNM and couldn't imagine life in New Mexico without it, now is a good time to support what you love by donating that unwanted car or truck. Maybe you are no longer driving it, or maybe it costs too much to repair. Either way, donating it to KUNM is a great way to show your love. To donate your vehicle, call 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888-586-6227. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahead. Is the Rio Grande important to you and your family? Do you have memories you'd like to share? Call 505-277-5866 or tweet to us with the hashtag Let's Talk NM to tell us about it. This is a good time to introduce another guest into the conversation. Joining us by Zoom, we have Dr. Phil King. He's a civil engineer and he specializes in water and agriculture. He's a retired professor from New Mexico State University and is now working with the Elephant Butte Irrigation District and still with his own engineering firm, King Engineering. Thanks for joining the conversation this morning, Phil. Thank you for having me. Phil, we just heard from Bill in Los Lunas, who talks about driving over the bridges over the Rio Grande in Los Lunas and in Albuquerque. And he said it kind of almost uh, the way that they're built obscures the river. Um, In his written comments, I think he even said it kind of shrinks the river. Is there any kind of engineering function of that? Well, uh, I'm I'm afraid I'm going to sound a whole lot like an engineer here. it, it, obviously, uh, scenery is is kind of far down the list of priorities when when building a bridge. You know, you've got to go for your structural integrity and for uh, you know the the hydraulics of the bridge are very important too. You don't want it to uh, you know be a choke point for the river or scour or things like that. And you know, every bridge is different, um, but uh, it, it, it's that's certainly not a high priority when when designing and building a bridge. Okay, thank you. We've been following the river south with our conversations today, and we just hit areas that have recently gone dry. It shocked a lot of people in Albuquerque last year, but we wouldn't have to go too much further south to see that more regularly. What's the river like in the summer months in the lower Rio Grande Valley? Well, in, in, uh, let me... Uh, by. Lower Rio Grande here, we're talking about from, uh, let's say, Elephant Butte Dam down to the Texas state line. Okay. And uh, it uh, in the it has been in drought for over 20 years now, uh, in, in severe drought, where uh, in the 80s and 90s, when we had a fairly wet period, we would release water from Caballo in early March or even you know end of February in some years, and run out to the end of October. Um, in recent years, that due to lack of, of water in Elephant Butte and and Caballo, we've had to shorten up our release seasons uh, to the point in uh, 
2013, we only ran for 47 days that year. We came on about June 1st and ran into the middle of July and shut down. And what happens is outside of that release season, when, when you know, the gates at Caballo are open and we're releasing water to meet orders for Elephant Beat Irrigation District, the El Paso Irrigation District in the country of Mexico, uh, the river dries up. It dries up completely, sand dunes. And, and it, it it's a pretty stark visual. For those who don't know, Caballo is the, the dam and reservoir just south of Elephant Butte. Um, I see we have a call from Matthew in Tijeras. He takes youth out into nature to see some of these drastic changes we've been talking about. Matthew, go ahead. Hello. Uh, do you have me? Yes. Hi. Uh, my name is Matthew Manhattis. I run a nonprofit uh, called Impact Outdoors, and we take youth into the environment to work on habitat improvements. Uh, they engage in data collection, and then they return to have a mentored hunt or angling opportunity over the habitat they've improved. Um, and I'm calling in today because <clears throat> I'm an avid waterfowler and a religious fisherman, and we, you know, we take veterans into the field with my program for free for waterfowl engagements up and down the state. And my concern is is that. You know, when I was a child, I was told that it was, you know, going to be my responsibility. And I, I think a lot of people have said, you know, that when, when, you know, when talking to their children, that it's going to be their responsibility to figure these things out about the disappearance of our biodiversity of birds up and down the river, uh, about issues of, of resource management, all these different things. And what I'm calling in to say today is that we don't really have time uh, to make this our children's issue. Um, I'm seeing habitats and marshlands up and down the river that are disappearing in two, three years. Um, Water levels that are so low that aquatic vegetation, macroinvertebrates, are no longer thriving in those environments. And that, you know, with the scaffolding of other issues like our amount of corn that we need to grow for the birds each year, available water to do so. Um, You know, how do we continue to grow a 120-day crop like corn with 90 days of water? Uh, Bosque del Apache dealt with this issue this last year with water solidity in the groundwater and it not being conducive for corn growth. Um, My concerns are is that we put the production of corn at our refuges uh, into, into action as almost a Band-Aid. And what do we do after two or three years of the failed Band-Aid? Um, what is that going to do to the Sandhill Cranes? What's that going to do to our migratory birds? And every time that I look at this issue, I see that agriculture and our birds are last on the list. So I'm, I'm calling in just to, to say that people need to get involved on the river they need to have an experience or a memory with a place before it disappears. Because one of the hardest things that I struggle with with my program is explaining to youth why we need to bring back a resource um, that they never experienced and that they didn't, they didn't even know existed. So, you know, um, that, that's kind of what I was calling in to say is that I'm really worried about, about these places. And my son is two and a half years old. It's always been a goal of mine to have him catfish some of these marshes and, and duck hunt with me. And right now, after this last season, I'm concerned that that's not going to be a reality and, and that's not too far away. 
Thanks for calling, Matthew, and thanks for the work you do. Uh, I want to get reactions from both Danielle Prokop here in the studio, but then I'm going to go to Phoebe Sweena uh, afterwards. Danielle, do you did you hear these kinds of attitudes and ideas a lot as you traveled along the river? Uh, absolutely, about the memory piece there, Matthew. Um, people are talking um, even further down south. If we look at a wetland down there that's being restored near the El Paso border, uh, there was a folk down there, Sergio Sabiniego, who grew up in El Paso, never knew that there was a wetland area there until he went to college, and then he went to grad school. So he found it there in grad school, and that's where he started making that memory. But he talked a lot about there's this effect of time travel, right, when you visit a thing like this to see something in, in this state. And so that they were constantly looking to share those memories with younger folks. And that's a big connect here is a lot of the folks that I talked to on the river, right, they're older. I talked to a lot of folks in agriculture, which has a pretty high median age. I talked to a lot of folks in restoration. Uh, they also have a high median age. I talked to a lot of experts. They have a high median age. But we also started talking to youth. And that's a piece that hopefully we want to explore down the line. But the youth here are inheriting a river that's inherently different than the one even I grew up in. Okay. And Phoebe Sweena, we also heard from Matthew about the idea of needing stronger and increased efforts to preserve and restore the river. Uh, what sorts of efforts are, are ongoing now and what more can we do? Thank you for that question, and, and thank you, Matthew, for for voicing your concerns and um, voicing your perspective. And I, you know, I think you know, as a as a as a mother, um, and doing a lot of work with our youth, um, youth is one of the keys. Um, and for our Pueblo people and our Indigenous peoples, one of the other important elements or, or pieces of the puzzle is is the the revitalization, if you will, and the strength of our language, our indigenous language, because it's within our indigenous language where we have those inherent ties to the, our understanding and our perspective of the river that have been lessons carried since time immemorial. And why is that important? That's important because those lessons, the expertise and wisdom that's been carried generation to generation um, talks about to your question about the stewardship of the river, the stewardship of our environment and our inherent responsibility and sacred trust for those of us living today to take care of the river, to steward it and to make sure that it is there for the next generation and those future generations. So what can we do? You know, everybody has a responsibility and a part to play in that and it's in their own individual realm as well as their community realm and then also the realm of our the state of New Mexico so with right now from last year all the forest fires that have devastated our upper watersheds on a, on a number of tributaries uh, and a number of main for a number of main stem rivers in New Mexico, there's been efforts of looking at restoration after forest fires to ensure that we have those sponges in the upper mountain areas and our tributaries. When it does snow, that we can then refill those aquifers and that the land can indeed absorb to what was talked about earlier in the headwaters to have um, vegetation so that we don't have the 
the immediate evaporation um, uh, from those snow melts. So there's a lot of little projects happen, happening throughout the state of New Mexico and then also a lot of federal money coming into the state of New Mexico to address some of these water concerns. Okay, I'd like to go back to Phil. We have a few, oh, about six minutes of the show left, seven minutes. Phil, we've seen pictures of Elephant Butte Reservoir with very low levels. The lost opportunity for recreation is a small inconvenience, but could you describe the implications on agriculture in southern New Mexico? It's big business down there. Uh, it, it is. Uh, the, the agriculture is, is quite uh, quite a bit more commercially oriented in the lower Rio Grande than it is in, in the middle Rio Grande. Um, and it has certainly been, it has certainly stressed the, the system. Um, we, with these, you know, our, our full allotment to our farmers would be three acre feet per acre, you know, three feet. And we've had years where the allotment is four inches. And so the, Respond, they've had to adapt to that, and the way they've adapted is uh, by planting less ground. We do have uh, land that is being fallowed to, you know, they can take what little water they have and concentrate it on less acreage. Uh, but a, a big part of the response has been the use of groundwater. And uh, so farmers who wish to grow a crop, if, you know, this year we're not going to release water right now. The plan is until July, or sorry, June 2nd. Uh, farmers have to start irrigating before that, so they'll get started with groundwater. They'll take their surface water when it's available and then finish the season out with groundwater. Now, uh, Phoebe mentioned the interconnection of, 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 of water through the system, and that is very much in play down in the lower Rio Grande. The groundwater, where did the groundwater come from that farmers are pumping? It came from the Rio Grande maybe centuries ago, maybe last year, but it came from the Rio Grande. So it's a connected system. When you take water out of the ground, indirectly, you're borrowing it from the river. Uh, and farmers have managed to um, to to adapt and you know stay viable. We are looking at some major uh, investments in infrastructure. Uh, in, in fact, working with the Interstate Stream Commission uh, to uh, get some of that going, but we've we've got some major adaptation to go, and it is not cheap. While <sighs> Phil, we can see the rivers and reservoirs drying. What about that groundwater, the underground water? Are our aquifers reliable and plentiful enough that we don't need to be alarmed by the loss of surface water? They are finite. There, there's no question about it. And again, the, this interaction between surface water and groundwater. Uh, really complicates matters, particularly when you have downstream water users like Texas and Mexico that um, have, uh, you know, a, 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 there's an obligation to, to deliver water to them as well. Okay. And, you know, I do have questions about that, but I'm not sure if we're going to get to it in the final few minutes we have here. Uh, Phil, should we plan for the end of farming in the region in southern New Mexico? No, we, we should plan for the evolution of farming. It's, it, you know, it isn't going to look like it looked in 1900. It's not even going to look like it looked in 2000. Um, I, I think what you will see is a, a reduction in acreage, a focus on higher value crops, 
and um, a lot of, of innovation in terms of things like stormwater capture um, to, to, to take water that would otherwise have flushed through the system and, and, and down unused, capture that water. And, you know, it's, it's not enough to offset this systematic shortage that we're getting, you know, from upstream now with, with this reduced runoff for a given level of snowpack, you know, it's reducing the typical runoff by hundreds of thousands of acre feet. Maybe we can capture 10,000 acre feet with stormwater, but, you know, we, we, we just have to take every incre incremental measure we can to try to offset the, the effects of aridification. Okay. Uh, Danielle, most of our discussion so far this morning has been set in more rural areas, talking about culture and agriculture. But you found something similar in El Paso, uh, where surface water is disappearing, and it's expected that groundwater will also dry up before too long. What are cities like El Paso doing to protect water for the future? Uh, yeah, El Paso is a really good example of diversification, right? So El Paso does use surface water for its drinking water. It receives about 40% at a good year uh, from the river, but it also uses groundwater. It works on desalinating groundwater through the K. Bailey Hutchison plant, the largest inland desalination plant currently in the United States. It also is thinking about importing water. And so there's a large project that I previously reported on uh, about importing water from Dell City. But... All of that takes a lot more money. Um, river water is by far the cheapest to treat and for us to drink. And these other costs, whether it's pumping and treatment or desalination and treatment or importation, are going to cost folks a lot more money. Now, if you'd like to see photos of those dry riverbeds around El Paso, head to KUNM.org and look for a link to this series from Source New Mexico. Uh, but maybe before we go, uh, Diana, could you kind of describe some of those images in that, that region around Las Cruces and El Paso? What did it look like when you were in the river there? Great. So I'm going to describe the area where we covered the, the vanishing small pools in El Paso. And basically, it's Sunday. It's, um, dusk and there are stilts walking around the small the shallow riverbeds and there's swifts flying over the bridge and it is such a beautiful little place of symbiosis where these animals have found refuge even on this little bit of rock. Okay, I'm sorry. With that, we have to end the show. We've reached the end of the hour. Thanks to everyone who called in or tweeted to us. And a big thank you to our guests, Daniel Prokop, Phoebe Suina, Diana Cervantes, and Phil King. KUNM will continue to follow water news in our state. Please follow us on Twitter and tweet to the show using the hashtag Let's Talk NM. On Facebook, search for KUNM Radio or email your thoughts on today's show to letstalk at KUNM.org. If you missed part of the show, we'll have audio up on our website soon. You can also subscribe to the Let's Talk New Mexico podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Next week, we'll talk about New Mexico's medical aid in dying law and how it's been used through its first year. Our engineer today is Marino Spencer. Daniel Montano handled the phones today. Taylor Velasquez live tweeted for us. And Nash Jones and Megan Kamrick co-produced the show this week. I'm Kaveh Movahead for Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM.